If you turn in your Bibles to Acts 20, that's our text for this morning. Um, last week we heard from Dr. Stephen Todd about the Eucharist, and he spoke to us about what that means, and, and he was giving me a hard time about preaching from an iPad, and I was trying to give him some tips during the week, um, but I had confessed to you that my iPad is not syncing with the Wi-Fi, so if one of the tech guys could come, I do need a, a, the password put in so I can get my notes in, so there you go. Um, just a little real-time uh, action for you. Run, Sven, run. That's good. <laughs> Acts 20 is where we are. And this is Paul um, doing a number of things. One of the things he does early in the chapters, he's um, teaching. And uh, I, I took great comfort in this, but Paul was teaching one day um, for many hours and hours. And it, the, the Bible says, past midnight. And uh, he was going on and on and on until a boy fell asleep in the window and fell out of the window. Uh, this past weekend on Friday night and on Saturday we had a leadership retreat at Glen Erie with our, with our leaders and we didn't, we didn't stay overnight but we were there and, uh, and I was joking with them. I said, now look, if I go on and on and on tonight, nobody fall out the window because we were on a second story. But that's not the part of Acts chapter 20 that we're going to focus on. If you would kind of scroll farther down the chapter, you'll see that there's, um, that there's this moment where Paul is on his way uh, and he's got to sort of make up for lost time, and so he's, he wants to say farewell to these folks in Ephesians, uh, in Ephesus rather, and uh, and so he's saying, hey, look, would you have the elders, the Ephesian elders, come to me so that I can greet them and say farewell to them? Now, farewell, farewells are an interesting uh, kind of speech. I don't know how many of you have lived in a place and then had to move away, uh, but that's happened to me a couple times in my life when I was. Uh, 10. Uh, my sister was 13. I was 10. My parents, our whole family, we moved from Malaysia to um, America. And we were coming to Portland, Oregon. My parents were going to Bible school there. And so we were leaving. And you know, as a, as a 10-year-old, you sort of think farewells can be more dramatic, um, just in your own mind at least. Uh, and so I, I remember having multiple farewell parties with, uh, with friends and getting ready to leave and everybody blessing us. But we knew we were going to come back. And so it was different after living in Portland, Oregon for three years. My parents finished their time at Bible school, and, uh, and we were moving back to Malaysia. That was a different kind of farewell, because that was the, that was the sort of farewell where we thought, who knows if we're ever going to see each other again. Plus, at 13, farewells get just even a little bit more dramatic. You know, everything's in your teen years sometimes a little more epic. Uh, and, and, uh, and you imagine like a movie soundtrack. Only in my day, the soundtrack was, and friends are friends forever. <laughs> you know, and so there's sort of this high drama to this farewell. And, uh, and it, you know, it's, well, you know, if the Lord's the Lord of them, you know, we'll see. We'll, we don't know when we'll meet again and all this stuff. And in a wonderful, sovereign, strange turn of events, you know, I went back to Malaysia, lived there for four years, and then came back again to the States at 17, went through college. And there's a couple of my friends from Portland that I've still stayed in touch with. And lo and behold, we were on parallel tracks with life and ministry. And so it's been kind of a wonderful thing how that's worked out. But farewells give you an occasion to sort of look back and reflect, don't they? 
Because we, we don't know when our life on earth is going to be over and not to be morbid here on a Sunday morning. But farewells kind of give us the opportunity to say, you know what, I'm leaving this place or this city or this season or this chapter. Maybe it's college graduation. Maybe it's uh, when you're getting married. I'm, I'm looking out at some of you that just had your wedding. Weddings can feel like a farewell to a certain chapter of your life, you know. And, and, and so there's, there are these moments where you look back and you reflect and you think, man, was that good? Was that bad? What have, I, what have I done? What do I have to show for this season of my life? And as I was thinking about it, I was thinking about the phrase that we use so often, a life well spent. And that's the title of our, of our exploration of Acts 20 this morning, a life well spent. What does it mean to have a life that is well spent? Uh, and then I started to think about how Whenever I talk to someone, or maybe it's just whenever you talk to me, it doesn't take very long in the conversation before the word tired shows up. Anybody relate? So how's, how are you doing? Oh, I'm good, I'm good. No, I mean, how's it really going with everything? Well, it's kind of tired. And, and all of us maybe have different reasons for saying that. I mean, work has been kind of crazy lately, or, you know, my four kids that feel like five, as I said here the first Sunday in Palmer, you know, but... But there's different reasons that we have. We say, well, life is just, it's full and it's full of good things, but I'm tired. Or you say, well, I, you know, it's just, it's this or it's that, and I'm just, I, I, I'm tired. But you know, as I was thinking about this, there's kind of a good tired and there's kind of a bad tired, right? There's a, there's a good tired that comes from knowing that you spent your life or you, or you spent this last week of your life on something that was wonderful and eternal, and, and, and powerful. And then there's the bad kind of tired where it just feels like, I don't know, I don't even know what I've been doing, I just feel worn out, right? And I wondered about the word drained versus the word spent. Now think with me for a minute, I got this water bottle here. Have you ever had the experience, and I have because, as I said, I have kids, and things spill when you give them to kids, uh, it just does. And so, and so uh, have you ever had the experience where you've had a full water bottle and then all of a sudden you went to your bag, maybe you were traveling in the airport or whatever, and you went to your backpack to grab the water bottle out and you're like, uh-oh. And you see this big dark stain on your backpack. You think, oh no, oh no, my books are ruined and all this stuff. And the water just drained out of it, right? Somehow, you don't know how there was a crack in it, it got bent, it got whatever, and it was just taken out of you without you knowing. That's drained. But spent is when someone says, man, I'm just so thirsty. Does anybody have some water? So here it is. They say, mm. oh, thank you. The water is gone, just like it was gone with the backpack. But one was drained and the other was spent to quench someone's thirst. And as I was thinking about this, I, I, I wondered if there's a way to kind of imagine that part of the difference between drained and spent maybe is in how much choice we have in it. That when someone sort of takes from you unexpectedly, when someone takes from you, you end up feeling drained. You say, well, I wasn't expecting that. Why'd you take that from me? And I thought of the story of the woman coming to Jesus and he, sort of unexpectedly she reaches out and touches him and power comes from him and he says, hey, whoa, who touched me? And the disciples are like, are you, are you kidding me? Like, everybody's touching me. She's like, no, someone just took from power, just went out from me. 
And I wondered, is that what leads us to be drained? I mean, this is a hypothesis for you to examine and think about. Do we feel drained when someone takes from you unexpectedly? But then the gospel reading this morning was Jesus saying, look, but no one takes my life, I lay it down. And the choice of saying, no, look, it's not that someone's taking it from me and so I'm drained, it's that I'm spending it on someone else. And I'm still emptied, but this is my choice. It's my choice to spend myself. And I want us this morning, as we look at Paul's farewell speech and look at this in in Acts 20, to think about all the places in our lives where we are being spent for someone else. Think about the mothers that are home with children. Think about um, uh, this, the, you know, um, all the different activities that you're in, different people or different stages of life, or maybe it's work, or maybe it's something else. And to think of, maybe you could say, oh, you know what, in that situation, yeah, I just really feel like people are taking from me. It's draining. But is there a way that we could step back and say, you know what, followers of Jesus are to sort of beat the world to the punch. We don't get things taken from us. We spend ourselves for others. Acts 20, verse 17 through 24 is Paul's farewell speech to the Ephesian elders. It is uh, the place where Paul has spent the longest amount of time. Uh, Ephesus, of all Paul's missionary journeys, Ephesus, he spent um, a good portion of three years there. And not just three years, but you remember from the previous chapters in Acts, you may recall, he was at a lecture hall, Tyrannus, the lecture hall of Tyrannus, which is... It makes you think of tyrant, which was either the student's nickname for their professor or his given name, I don't know. But it was his lecture hall, and Paul spends every afternoon there lecturing, day after day after day, just teaching there. Think about this, giving out. And then, and then as he'll tell us, there were many evenings where he went into homes and was preaching. And This is Paul giving his life so that a church will be born in this city, a city that's very confused about idolatry and, and, and this, this, this temple to the goddess of Artemis there in Ephesus, a city that's got all kinds of weird confusion and spiritual stuff and that's obsessed with power and money and religion. And Paul comes in and says, well, there's work to be done. And so Paul gives himself in this city. This speech of Paul, this is also kind of an interesting, maybe more trivia pursuit, trivial pursuit on this note than on the other one, but, but this is the only speech in the book of Acts given to Christians. Every other sermon, every other speech in the book of Acts is either to a group of Jews or to Gentiles or to people or to, uh, in a court setting. As you'll see, Paul is headed. The reason he's on a, uh, in a hurry is because Paul is determined to go to Rome and confront the Roman authorities with the message of Jesus. So he's kind of in a hurry. But this speech is the only speech given to a group of Christians. Pick it up in verse 17. From Miletus he sent a message to Ephesus calling for the church's elders to meet him. And when they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived among you the whole time I was with you. Beginning with the first day I arrived in the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears in the midst of trials that came upon me because of the Jews' schemes. You know how I held back nothing that would be helpful so that I could proclaim to you and teach you both publicly and privately in your homes. You know how I have testified to both Jews and Greeks that they must change their hearts and lives as they turn to God and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem and I don't know what will happen to me there. What I do know is that the Holy Spirit testifies to me from city to city that prisons and troubles await me. 
don't know about you, but I wouldn't be in a hurry to move to the next city. Paul's like, I just know this is what I'm given to do, been given to do. See, but this is what he says. But nothing, not even my life, is more important than completing my mission. Wow. Nothing. Not even my, is more important. Nothing, there is nothing other than the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify about the good news of God's grace. A couple of observations just about Paul, and then we'll move in to, to see how do we enter this text and where do we find ourselves in this. But, but see, Paul understood that our lives are meant to be spent. Our lives are meant to be spent. Our culture says, hold back a little. Hold back a little. Save some for yourself. Make sure you've got enough so that you can get your golf times in. And also, look, I'm not picking on golf. I don't happen to golf, but there's nothing wrong with golfing. It's just an illustration. And I'm going to stop talking like this now. But there's something about culture that says, look, just save a little back. You don't need to spend it all. Just save a little bit. You know, you can serve Jesus, but don't go overboard. I mean, Jesus, you know, that's all extra credit kind of stuff. And Paul says, no, no, look, this gospel-shaped life is about being spent. This isn't country club Christianity. This isn't about following Jesus, getting heaven, and enjoying the cushy life here in the meantime. This is Paul saying, no, look, I understand. I said yes to Jesus. We talked about this two Sundays ago. Saying yes to Jesus is saying yes to the King. And the King comes to reign And he reorients and reshapes every part of our lives. And so all of a sudden, we understand. Now look, I know that it's possible to get too uh, um, obsessed with purpose. I know that it's possible to kind of say, to go to one extreme and to say, it's all about purpose, and if you're not doing anything, then you're worth nothing. I I know that. And I know we need the healthy correction of saying, look, who you are is more important than what you do. And I know it's important to balance the message and to say that, look, who you're becoming, your character being formed is more important than a specific assignment. But I don't want us to start to just only hear that, that we get comfortable and imagine that we don't have an assignment to our lives. Church, you have an assignment on your life. Your calling is not just to say yes to Jesus and then take up space. Your calling is to be part of the family of God, part of the community of God, and find a way that you can spend yourself in obedience to Jesus. It's not to just sort of sit and say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm." Paul spends his life in obedience to God with great humility, he says. He spends his life on the gospel. He says, I held nothing back. I love this. This is Paul saying, look, I'm going to say every part of how the announcement of Jesus as king, the gospel, the royal announcement of Jesus' kingship, I'm going to tell you every part of that, even the parts of it that make it hard for you. I held nothing back because I believed it was going to be helpful. He spent his life in obedience to God. He spent his life on the gospel. He spent his life for the church. He believed in this. He says, look, This is what I'm giving myself to. He goes on. We'll pick up his sermon now in verse 32. He now begins to address the elders themselves. And he says, look, now I entrust you to God and the message of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all whom God has made holy. 
I haven't craved anyone's silver, gold, or clothing. You yourselves know that I have provided for my own needs and for those of my companions with my own hands in everything I have shown you that by working hard we must help the weak. In this way we remember the Lord Jesus' words, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now that phrase that Paul is saying in the Lord Jesus' words doesn't show up in the Gospels. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul may have been referencing a phrase that was so well known that it was passed down and passed down. And Paul's saying, look, we, we kind of all, this is common knowledge. We've, as if that this idea was embedded in Jesus' teaching. And so he says this phrase, as Jesus himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. A couple things for us to pay note of. In verse 32, he says, I entrust you to God and the message of his grace. How is it that we're able to live lives that spend ourselves for the sake of others? We spend ourselves on others because of what God has done for us. We spend ourselves for others because of what God has done for us, because Christ spent His life for us. This this message of God's grace, it, it shows up a couple times in this chapter, this word grace, this idea of Paul saying, look, I'm entrusting you to the gospel. He's saying, look, there's something about catching a glimpse of God's own grace that leads you to live a life of extravagant generosity. One of the words of Jesus that are recorded in our Gospels is this phrase where Jesus says, freely you have received, freely give. The trick about Spending yourself for the sake of others is if we were to be honest and look around the room and say, okay, come on guys, we have an assignment. God's calling us to live beyond ourselves. And to if we're honest, most of us will say, well, I got nothing left in the tank. I mean, that's a nice idea. And maybe that's okay for you as the pastor. Or maybe that's okay for the leadership team and glad you guys had a retreat and all this stuff. But I got nothing. And part of my role in ministry, at least the way Paul defines it in his letter to the Ephesians, is that the role of ministry is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, right? So I'm not the one that's going to spend myself for every single person. It's sort of, the math doesn't work. But where the kingdom sort of changes math is it becomes exponential. When all of a sudden, all of us as a people of God begin to realize, you know what? If we can drink deeply of this grace, of what Christ has done for us, then we can turn around and spend our lives for others. There is no way you can spend your life if you're drained. You can't spend your life if you're drained. One of the reasons we end every Sunday with the table of the Lord and why that's the high point of the service, beyond the sermon, beyond the singing, so that we can remember that we come to the table that God has prepared for us and say, now I will drink deeply of your life and of your grace. Because all of us need a moment in our week. All of us need a place in our life, a rhythm built into our life. This is why we have a rhythm built into our life where we stop and we say, okay, okay, remind me again of God's grace. Remind me again of how Christ has spent His life on me 
Remind me again of what Christ has done for me. And so because, out of that and, and because of that, I can then turn and spend my life on someone else. See, this is where the, the church is special. Because no amount of altruistic motive, no, about, no amount of noble intent is going to motivate people to make sacrifices for the sake of someone else. It just doesn't work. We've seen experiments where on a social scale, let's force people to make sacrifices for the sake of others, and it just doesn't work. Because without the gospel at the center of it, it's only people who have been transformed by God's grace flowing into us. Only those people turn around and spend their lives on someone else. Is that true? I think that's true. I think that's why we drink deeply each week when we come to say it's the grace of God that changes, that shapes, that transforms. Secondly, we spend our lives on others because Christ spent His life for them. So the first one is that He spent His life for us. And so out of receiving His grace and with gratitude, we say, all right, well, I'll, such as I have, I give unto you, right? Such as we receive from you. Thank you, Lord, for your I, I'm going to pour. But now, when you begin to realize that they are people that Christ spent His life for, how does that change the way you begin to see them? Then all of a sudden, you begin to realize, okay, this is... Uh, these are not just a group of people. These are not just folks that are trying my patience or testing my... You know, they, these are people that Christ shed His blood for. Christians are people who understand that we are not excluded from the company of sinners and that sinners are not excluded from the company of people that Christ died for. Let me say that again. Christians are people who understand that we have not been excluded from the company of sinners. We don't look and say, well, oh, that... We say, we were. But we also understand that when we are tempted to say us and them, we want to remember that the quote-unquote them are included in the company of the all that Jesus died for. Right? And Paul reminds the Ephesian elders, he says, look... Christ, whom Christ, whom God purchased with His own blood, the blood of Christ. As if to say, look, if Jesus spilt His blood to purchase this church, what does it mean for how we think about one another? Does it mean that we can sort of treat one another lightly and sort of say, well, I, you know, I mean, I kind of like them, but I don't really want to do this. And I, you know. Or do we all of a sudden have to say, you know, there's something very different going on here. So I don't love hanging out with them per se. But they're a group of people that Jesus shed his blood for. And let's talk specifically about the church for a minute. There's a great, great quote, quote in one of the commentaries I read this week from uh, Richard Baxter who wrote a book back in the 1600s called The Reformed Pastor. And whether or not you're in the Reformed tradition, it really is irrelevant to this particular quote because Baxter Talks up to, writing to pastors says, these are the ones for whom Christ died. Will you not pray for them? Will you not care for them? Will you not even... And he goes through this list. And I, was, I thought about putting the quote up, but then I was, it was going to convict me all over again this morning. But there's this sense of how lightly do we treat church? How must it grieve Jesus when we commodify church? 
Do you know what it means to commodify something? You treat something like a commodity that's really not a commodity. Well, what do you mean, Glenn? Well, how do I commodify? How do I treat something like a commodity? When you begin to ask yourself cost versus value questions, red lights should go off. You have just commodified that. Now, you can ask yourself cost versus value questions about shoes and which shoes to buy because that's a commodity. <laughs> but you can't ask yourself cost versus value questions about your children. <laughs> Some of you are like, I wish I could. <laughs> but you can't. Children are not a commodity. And every parent knows the cost is going to be way higher. But you value them. And the value... So, but let's not even go there. Let's not even go there. Because children aren't a commodity. And our culture is overly obsessed with economic lenses. I know economy, economics is important. I get that. But, but as a pastor, I'm calling you to use a different lens than always just an economic one. I'm calling you to see people through the lens of the blood of Jesus. Now, that sounds kind of weird, I know. But think about it. If they are a person for whom Christ spent his own life, how dare we treat it like a commodity? How dare we evaluate relationships based, out of, based on, well, I don't know if I'm getting so much out of this relationship, and so I don't know, I'm going to... This church is not really... You know, I'm not getting a lot out of it. I'm not putting a lot into it, but I'm not getting a lot out of it. So wait a minute, wait a minute. Paul's telling these Ephesian elders, don't you dare begin to view the people of God like a commodity. They are the sheep that the shepherd laid down his life for. And I say that to all of us as leaders, but I say that to all of us as the people of God. To say, how can we begin to see one another differently? To see one another as the family of God that Christ shed His blood for. Parents in the room, you, you understand a little bit of this when you, when you intercept your children fighting. And when you, when you see them turning, you know, getting a little bit mean with one another, every mother, maybe in particular because of the way God has gifted mothers with this incredibly nurturing heart. But dads, you get this too because you're protectors and defenders. And you see this happening in your children. You say, wait a minute, guys, sit down, wait you are family. And you will always be each other's brother or sister. And you can't treat each other that way. My parents always said that to my sister and I. Now, we, of course, we never fought, but they were pre preemptively telling us. You know. <laughs> and there's something very spiritual about the reason God calls the church Christ's own bride. This one, this family that God has purchased, Christ has purchased with His own blood. And Paul is pleading with these elders in tears, saying, please, get this. It's the reason when Paul writes to Pastor Timothy, who becomes the pastor of the church in Ephesus by tradition. It's the reason if you read 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, what's the issue Paul hits with Timothy more than any other issue? Guard them. Don't let false teachers come in. Be careful. Watch over them. You protect this. And then Jesus sends a letter to the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation, right? And he says, look, you've done many good things, but, but here's the deal. You're, 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 you're lukewarm. You've forgotten your first love. 
You've forgotten your first love. Look, we cannot root today's sermon in obligation or altruism or good intentions. Or it'll fall apart. But because there will be a day where we say, I don't feel like spending my life on him or her or them or this. We have to root it in Jesus. That's why Jesus in the book of Revelation says, you've forsaken your first love because if you remembered that your first love is me, is Jesus or the love you had at first, the love that you had at first because you were so overcome by my grace pouring into you that you were pouring yourselves out for one another, then we wouldn't be here today. When the early Christians began to function in society, one of the virtues that made the Greeks kind of scratch their heads was the virtue of humility. And any of you who know a little bit about the classical virtues will say, look, the Greeks valued a lot of things. We've got Aristotle's golden mean that taught us to neither be to this or to that, but, you know, before there was Goldilocks, there was Aristotle, you know. The, the just right sort of approach to ethics. But the one thing that made every sort of Greek ethicist scratch their head was this idea of humility and forgiveness. Why would I do that? And the only answer the early Christians had was, because this is what Christ has done for us. It's not because it's good. It's not because this is what it means to be a good person or a good, you know. It's because this is what Christ has done for us. And so our final, the final statement this morning is this. The gospel of God's grace calls us into an extravagantly generous way of life. The message translation, which Patton jokingly you know, said how I do love Eugene Peterson and all of his writings, there are occasions where you read certain things in the message, you say, well, that's an interesting way to say that. And Eugene some paraphrases it this way, verse 24. It says, what matters most to me is to finish what God started, the job the Master Jesus gave me of letting everyone I meet know about this incredibly extravagant generosity of God. You could write down that phrase, this incredibly extravagant generosity of God. The great Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann talks about God's cosmic generosity and he talks about this picture of the feast that is coming in the age to come and he says in his gruff you know Brueggemann voice the 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 place where there is bread unending and cups overflowing and all of the image of Jesus feeding the the 5,000 and feeding the 4,000 is this image of saying with God there is always more than enough with God there is always a generosity that is more than you can receive. With God there is grace that is so lavish that it almost seems wasteful except that we keep on receiving and taking it. With God there is this incredibly extravagant generosity. God's self-giving love. The great religions of the world will all tell you that they value love. They will tell you you that they value a love for your brother. But there is only one person who redefined neighbor to include 
your enemy. You can explore the great ancient religions. Oh yeah, we believe in loving brother and loving neighbor. But press them the way the scribe pressed Jesus. Who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells him a story where the infidel Samaritan is the hero so that it would expose the hatred in his own heart to say, you mean... It's Jesus that calls us to a love so extravagant, so generous, that it almost seems wasteful. I can't love that person. That's wasted love. That's wasted kindness. They're not responding. How much did Paul teach in Ephesus? How many people responded? The issue here is not how we gauge. Again, this is where, I, I, again, I, I love business. I have a master's in management in addition. You know, I, I, I get the grid of, of cost versus value. But in pure econ- if this is pure economics, we would all quit on, a, on the mission of Christ. So I'm giving a lot, and I don't see a lot of fruit. I'm loving on my neighbor, and they are ne- they've never come to church with me. I'm being kind, and I don't even say... The economics of the kingdom say, if Christ has lavished his love on me, and if Christ has lavished his love on them, then so will I. So will I. So will I. As we get ready to come to the table of the Lord this morning, one of the things I want to prepare you for in a a couple weeks, coming up in a couple weeks, is something in New Life Church we're calling Move the Mountain. Now, if you've been part of New Life Church for a long time, you, you know what this is about. If you're new, this may be sort of, what, what, is, what is this? Pastor Brady is our senior pastor. He, he's been here now for five years, which is amazing to think about. It's been five years, and it's been really incredible, and the team is, is gelling, and the church is being reborn from the inside. It really, there's a beautiful work of the Spirit. You're a big part of that. But he inherited a, a big building up north with a big debt. And the Bible tells us that the borrower becomes slave to the lender. All of us are like, don't we know it? Look at our national, you know, it, we, we understand that. It's very difficult to be a servant to someone else when you're a slave to debt. It's very difficult, in fact, it's impossible, I think, to be a servant to those who are in need when you are a slave to debt. And so the Lord began to speak to our elders. I'm looking at Larry Yonker. Here's one of our elders. We have nine elders at New Life. Six of them are non-staff. Three of them are staff. And the Lord began to speak to our elders at the beginning of this year, the end of last year, and said, let's, let's take the next few years and focus on moving the mountain of debt, not so we can say, yay, we paid off something, but so that we can be freed up to serve our city in new ways. Because the church in a city is supposed to be, is supposed to seek the flourishing of that city. Jeremiah 29. Wherever you find yourself, seek the flourishing, seek the shalom, the peace of that place. We have started already this year a couple of things as part of that. We call them dream centers of Colorado Springs. The first one that opened up uh, over a year ago, isn't it, Um, is a women's health clinic. And we've seen over 1,200 patients now who wouldn't otherwise get health care. Many of us understand, look, there's, there's need for systems and government, this and that, but 
the truth is, there's always going to be gaps and cracks in the system. And it's the people of God who ought to run first to the scene to help, right? Amen to that? That those who know the love of Christ can give the love of Christ much better than a system can. I don't know about you, but, but people don't need... Anyway, so the Women's Health Clinic is this thing that helps, has helped um, these women. And it's a holistic approach. Not only are they seeing them, but they're offering prayer to them. Uh, the Joel Project is something that, that is... Uh, has it opened, Matthew? It's about to open. One home's open, the next home will be open the next three to four months. What the Joel Project is, is for young men who age out of the foster system. Here's an alarming statistic that we have learned, is that 80% of young men who age out of the foster system within one year are either homeless, incarcerated, or dead. Those aren't good stats. These are the kinds of statistics that a system can't care for and fill in. It's where the church arises. Amen? And so we've opened one home, we're about to open a second one. There's another thing called Mary's Home. This idea here is um, for single moms and with children who, who have been homeless. And it's a two-year residential program that it involves training and skills that prepares them to flourish. I, I just want you to know that Matthew Ayers and this team, they're not inventing this stuff from scratch. They're doing a number of work, linking arms with organizations in the city, learning from others, looking at places where churches in other cities have done similar things, and finding a way that we can flesh this out. A lot of this stuff is beginning in faith, because we've already, this year, paid off a, a, good, a, a good chunk, 10% or so of that, of that debt. But in two weeks, we're going to have a Move the Mountain offering. And the reason for that is to say, we're, is because we're about to refinance our loan. There's a little bit of business, Right? We're about to refinance our loan at the end of October, and, and the lower we get the principal, the lower the payments will be. The lower the payments, the more cash is freed up to be able to serve the poor in our city. So I just want you to think about that. And I, and I know some of you will say, well, they, you know, this isn't my church, or, or I'm new to this church, why should I do this? Or, I'm just part of downtown. And what, you know. uh, the reason we were able to start New Life Downtown is because 10% of whatever was given to New Life uh, to move the mountain was, was given to, move to a right now opportunity. And we're a sliver of that right now opportunity. So, you know, I, I, when I married my dear wife, she had college debt. I could have said, well, honey, that's not mine. So, I mean, I didn't make those decisions. <laughs> you know? And thank God I didn't say that. <laughs> because I know that our future belongs together, we share the load together. That's the same thing as church. Because we know that our future belongs together, we share the load together. So that's just that's an aside to kind of get you prepared for that. In a, in a couple of weeks, we'll, we'll do a special offering for that. But, but look, here we are, and we're coming to the Lord's table today because we're saying we, we want to have lives that are well spent, not just drained and taken have life taken out of us by others. No, we, we want to choose to willingly spend ourselves, our love, lavishing it on others. But how can we until we receive afresh from Christ the love that God has lavished on us? Amen?